Chapter Thirty, Part Two of East Lynn. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. East Lynn by Mrs. Henry Wood. Chapter Thirty, Part Two. Evening came, and the time of Richard's departure. It was again snowing heavily, though it had ceased in the middle of the day. Money for the present had been given to him. Arrangements had been discussed. Mr. Carlyle insisted upon Richard's sending him his address as soon as he should own one to send, and Richard faithfully promised. He was in very low spirits, almost as low as Barbara, who could not conceal her tears. They dropped in silence on her pretty silk dress. He was smuggled down the stairs, a large cloak of Miss Carlyle's enveloping him, into the room he had entered by storm the previous night. Mr. Carlyle held the window open. "'Good-bye, Barbara, dear. If ever you should be able to tell my mother of this day, say that my chief sorrow was not to see her.' "'Oh, Richard!' she sobbed forth, broken-hearted. "'Good-bye. May God be with you and bless you.' "'Farewell, Richard,' said Miss Carlyle. "'Don't you be fool enough to get into any more scrapes.' Last of all, he wrung the hand of Mr. Carlyle. The latter went outside with him for an instant, and their leave-taking was alone. Barbara returned to the chamber he had quitted. She felt that she must indulge in a few moments sobbing. Joyce was there, but Barbara was sobbing when she entered it. "'It is hard for him, Miss Barbara, if he is really innocent.' Barbara turned her streaming eyes upon her. "'If—Joyce, do you doubt that he is innocent?' "'I quite believe him to be so now, Miss.' Nobody could so solemnly assert what was not true. The thing at present will be to find that Captain Thorn. "'Joyce!' exclaimed Barbara, in excitement, seizing hold of Joyce's hands. "'I thought I'd found him. I believed in my own mind that I knew who he was. I don't mind telling you, though I have never before spoken of it. And with one thing or other, this night I feel just as if I should die, as if I must speak. I thought it was Sir Francis Levison.' Joyce stared with all her eyes. "'Miss Barbara!' "'I did. I've thought it ever since the night that Lady Isabel went away. My poor brother was at West Lynne then. He'd come for a few hours, and he met the man Thorn walking in Bean Lane. He was in evening dress, and Richard described a peculiar motion of his, the throwing off of his hair from his brow. He said his white hand and his diamond ring glittered in the moonlight. The white hand, the ring, the motion—' for he was always doing it, all reminded me of Captain Levison, and from that hour until today I believed him to be the man Richard saw. Today Richard tells me that he knows Sir Francis Levison, and that he and Thorn are intimate. What I think now is that this Thorn must have paid a flying visit to the neighbourhood that night to assist Captain Levison in the wicked work that he had on hand. "'How strange it all sounds!' uttered Joyce. And I never could tell my suspicions to Mr. Carlyle. I did not like to mention Francis Levison's name to him. Barbara soon returned downstairs. I must be going home, she said to Mr. Carlyle. It is turned half-past seven, and Mamma will be uneasy. Whenever you like, Barbara. But can I not walk? I am sorry to take you out your ponies again, and in this storm. Mr. Carlyle laughed. Which would feel the storm the worst, you or the ponies? 
but when barbara got outside she saw that it was not the pony carriage but the chariot that was in waiting for her she turned inquiringly to mr carlyle did you think i should allow you to go home in an open carriage to-night barbara are you coming also i suppose i had better he smiled to see that you and the carriage do not get fixed in a rut barbara withdrew to her corner of the chariot and cried silently very very deeply did she mourn the unhappy situation the privations of her brother and she knew that he was one to feel them deeply he could not battle with the world's hardships so bravely as many could mr carlyle only detected her emotion as they were nearing the grove he leaned forward took her hand and held it between his don't grieve barbara bright days may be in store for us yet the carriage stopped you may go back he said to the servants when he alighted i shall walk home oh exclaimed barbara i do think you intend to spend the evening with us mamma will be so pleased her voice sounded as if she was also mr carlyle drew her hand within his arm as they walked up the path but barbara had reckoned without her host mrs hare was in bed consequently could not be pleased at the visit of mr carlyle the justice had gone out and she feeling tired and not well thought she would retire to rest barbara stole into her room but found her asleep so that it fell to barbara to entertain mr carlyle they stood together before the large pier-glass in front of the blazing fire barbara was thinking over the events of the day what mr carlyle was thinking of was best known to himself his eyes covered with their drooping eyelids were cast upon barbara there was a long silence at length barbara seemed to feel that his gaze was upon her and she looked up at him will you marry me barbara the words were spoken in the quietest most matter-of-fact tone just as if he had said shall i give you a chair barbara but oh the change that passed over her countenance the sudden light of joy the scarlet flush of emotion and happiness then it all faded down to paleness and sadness she shook her head in the negative. "'But you are very kind to ask me,' she added in words. "'What is the impediment, Barbara?' Another rush of colour, as before, and a deep silence. Mr. Carlyle stole his arm around her and bent his face on a level with hers. "'Whisper it to me, Barbara.' She burst into a flood of tears. "'Is it because I once married another?' no no it is the remembrance of that night you cannot have forgotten it and it is stamped on my brain in letters of fire i never thought so to betray myself but for what passed that night you would not have asked me now barbara she glanced up at him the tone was so painful do you know that i love you that there is none other in the whole world whom i would care to marry but you nay barbara when happiness is within our reach let us not throw it away upon a chimera she cried more softly leaning upon his arm happiness would it be happiness for you great and deep happiness he whispered she read truth in his countenance and a sweet smile illumined her sunny features mr carlyle read its signs you love me as much as ever barbara far more far more was the murmured answer 
and Mr. Carlyle held her closer and drew her face fondly to his. Barbara's heart was at length at rest, and she had been content to remain where she was forever. And Richard? Had he got clear off? Richard was stealing along the road, plunging into the snow by the hedge, because it was more sheltered there than in the beaten path, when his umbrella came in contact with another umbrella. Miss Carlyle had furnished it to him, not to protect his battered hat, but to protect his face from being seen by the passers-by. The umbrella he encountered was an aristocratic silk one, with an ivory handle. Dick's was of democratic cotton, with hardly any handle at all, and the respective owners had been bearing on, hats down and umbrellas out, till they, the umbrellas, met smash, right under a gas-lamp. Aside went the umbrellas, and the antagonists stared at each other. "'How dare you, fellow! Can't you see where you're going on?' Dick thought he should have dropped. He would have given all the money his pockets held if the friendly earth had but opened and swallowed him in, for he was now peering into the face of his own father. Uttering an exclamation of dismay which broke from him involuntarily, Richard sped away with the swiftness of an arrow. Did Justice Hare recognize the tones? It cannot be said. He saw a rough, strange-looking man with bushy, black whiskers, who was evidently scared at the sight of him. That was nothing, for the justice, being a justice, and a strict one, was regarded with considerable awe in the parish of, by those of Dick's apparent caliber. Nevertheless, he stood still and gazed in the direction until all sound of Richard's footsteps had died away in the distance. Tears were streaming down the face of Mrs. Hare. It was a bright morning after the snowstorm, so bright that the sky was blue and the sun was shining, but the snow lay deeply upon ground. Mrs. Hare sat in her chair, enjoying the brightness, and Mr. Carlyle stood near her. The tears were of joy and of grief mingled, of grief at hearing that she should at last have to part with Barbara, of joy that she was going to one so entirely worthy of her at Mr. Carlyle. "'Archibald, she's had a happy home here. You will render yours as much so.' "'To the very utmost of my power. You will be ever kind to her and cherish her. With my whole strength and heart, dear Mrs. Hare, I thought you knew me too well to doubt me. Doubt you? I do not doubt you. I trust you implicitly, Archibald. Had the whole world laid themselves at Barbara's feet, I should have prayed that she might choose you. A small smile flitted over Mr. Carlyle's lips. He knew it was what Barbara would have done. But, Archibald, what about Cornelia? returned Mrs. Hare. I would not for a moment interfere in your affairs, or in the arrangements you and Barbara may agree upon, but I cannot help thinking that married people are better alone. Cornelia will quit East Lynn, said Mr. Carlyle. I have not spoken to her yet, but I shall do so now. I have long made my mind up that if ever I did marry again, I and my wife would live alone. It is said she interfered too much with my former wife. Had I suspected it, Cornelia should not have remained in the house a day. Rest assured that Barbara shall not be an object to the chance. "'How did you come over her?' demanded the justice, who had already given his gratified consent, and who now entered in his dressing-gown and morning wig. "'Others have tried it on, and Barbara would not listen to them.' "'I suppose I must have cast a spell upon her,' answered Mr. Carlyle, breaking into a smile. "'Here she is. Barbara!' carried on the unceremonious justice. "'What is it that you see in Carlyle more than anybody else?' 
Barbara's scarlet cheeks answered for her. "'Papa,' she said, "'Otway Bethel is at the door, asking to speak to you. Jasper says he won't come in.' "'Then I'm sure I'm not going out to him in the cold. "'Here, Mr. Otway, what you're afraid of?' he called out. "'Come in.' Otway Bethel made his appearance in his usual sporting costume, but he did not seem altogether at his ease in the presence of Mrs. Hare and Barbara. "'The Colonel wished to see you, Justice, and ask you if you had any objection to the meetings being put off from one o'clock till two, cried he, after nodding to Mr. Carlyle. "'He has got a friend coming to see him unexpectedly, who will leave again by the two o'clock train.' "'I don't care which it is,' answered Mr. Hare. Two o'clock will do as well as one for me. That's all right, then, and I'll drop in upon Herbert and Pinner and acquaint them. Miss Carlyle's cold was better that evening. In fact, she seemed quite herself again, and Mr. Carlyle introduced the subject of his marriage. It was after dinner that he began upon it. Cornelia, when I married Lady Isabel Vane, you reproached me severely with having kept you in the dark. "'If you had not kept me in the dark, but consulted me, as any other Christian would, the course of events would have been wholly changed, and the wretchedness and disgrace that fell on this house been spared to it,' fiercely interrupted Miss Carlyle. "'We will leave the past,' he said, "'and consider the future. I was about to remark that I do not intend to fall under your displeasure again for the like offence. I believe you have never wholly forgiven it.' "'And never shall!' cried she, impetuously. I did not deserve the slight. Therefore, almost as soon as I know it myself, I acquaint you. I am about to marry a second time, Cornelia. Miss Carlyle started up. Her spectacles dropped off her nose, and a knitting-box which she happened to have on her knees clattered to the floor. What did you say? she uttered, aghast. I am about to marry. You? I. Is there anything so very astonishing in it? For the love of common sense, don't go and make such a fool of yourself. You've done it once. Was not that enough for you? But you must run your head into the noose again. Now, Cornelia, can you wonder that I do not speak of things when you meet them in this way? You treat me just as you did when I was a child. It is very foolish. When folk act childishly, they must be treated as children. I always thought you were mad when you married before— but I shall think you doubly mad now. Because you have preferred to remain single and solitary yourself, is it any reason why you should condemn me to do the same? You are happy alone. I should be happier with a wife. That she may go and disgrace you as the last one did, intemperately spoke Miss Carlyle, caring not a rush what she said in her storm of anger. Mr. Carlyle's brow flushed, but he controlled his temper. No, he calmly replied, I am not afraid of that in the one I have now chosen. Miss Corney gathered her knitting together. He had picked up her box. Her hands trembled, and the lines of her face were working. It was a blow to her, as keen as the other had been. Pray, who is it that you have chosen? she jerked forth. The whole neighborhood has been after you. Let it be who it will, Cornelia. You'll be sure to grumble. Were I to say that it was a royal princess, or a peasant's daughter, you would equally seek grounds for finding fault. Of course I should. I know who it is. That stuck-up Louisa Dobbity. No, it is not. I never had the slightest intention of choosing Louisa Dobbity, nor she of choosing me. I am marrying to please myself, and, for a wife, Louisa Dobbity would not please me. 
"'As you did before,' sarcastically put in Miss Corney. "'Yes, as I did before.' "'Well, can't you open your mouth and say who it is?' was the exasperated rejoinder. "'It is Barbara Hare.' "'Who?' shrieked Miss Carlyle. "'You are not deaf, Cornelia.' "'Well, you are an idiot!' she exclaimed, lifting up her hands and eyes. "'Thank you,' he said, but without any signs of irritation. "'And so you are. You are, Archibald. To suffer that girl, who's been angling after you so long, to catch you at last.' "'She has not angled after me. Had she done so, she would probably never have been Mrs. Carlyle. Whatever passing fancy she may have entertained for me in earlier days, she has shown no symptoms of it of late years.' and I am quite certain that she had no more thought or idea that I should choose her for my second wife than you had I should choose you. Others have angled after me too palpably, but Barbara has not. She is a conceited minx, as vain as she is high. What else have you to urge against her? I would have married a girl without a slur, if I must have married, aggravatingly returned Miss Corney. Slur? slur yes dear me is it an honour the possessing a brother such as richard miss corney sniffed pigs may fly but i never saw them try at it the next consideration cornelia is about your residence you will go back i presume to your own home miss corney did not believe her own ears go back to my own home she exclaimed i shall do nothing of the sort i shall stop at east lynne What's to hinder me? Mr. Carlyle shook his head. It cannot be, he said, in a low, decisive tone. Who says so? she sharply asked. I do. Have you forgotten that night, when she went away, the words spoken by Joyce? Cornelia, whether they were true or false, I will not subject another to the chance. She did not answer. Her lips parted and closed again. Somehow, Miss Carlyle could not bear to be reminded of that revelation of Joyce's. It subdued even her. "'I cast no reflection upon you,' hastily continued Mr. Carlyle. "'You have been a mistress of a house for many years, and you naturally look to be so. It is right you should. But two mistresses in a house do not answer, Cornelia. They never did, and they never will.' "'Why did you not give me so much of your sentiments when I first came to East Lynne?' she burst forth. I hate hypocrisy. They were not my sentiments then. I possessed none. I was ignorant upon the subject, as I was upon many others. Experience has come to me since. You will not find a better mistress of a house than I have made you, she resentfully spoke. I do not look for it. The tenants leave your house in March, do they not? Yes, they do, snapped Miss Corney. But as we are on the subject of details of ways and means— Allow me to tell you that if you did what is right, you would move into that house of mine, and I will go to a smaller, as you seem to think I shall poison Barbara if I remain with her. East Lynne is a vast deal too fine and too grand for you. I do not consider it so. I shall not quit East Lynne. Are you aware that, in leaving your house, I take my income with me, Archibald? Most certainly. Your income is yours, and you will require it for your own purposes. I have neither a right to, nor wish for it. It will make a pretty good hole in your income, 
the withdrawing of it, I can tell you that. Take care that you and East Lynne don't go bankrupt together. At this moment the summons of a visitor was heard. Even that excited the ire of Miss Carlyle. I wonder who's come bothering to-night, she uttered. Peter entered. It is Major Thorn, sir. I have shown him into the drawing-room. Mr. Carlyle was surprised. He had not thought Major Thorn within many a mile of West Lynne. He proceeded to the drawing-room. "'Such a journey,' said Major Thorn to Mr. Carlyle. "'It is my general luck to get ill weather when I travel. Rain and hail, thunder and heat. Nothing bad comes amiss when I am out. The snow lay on the rails. I don't know how thick. At one station we were detained two hours.' "'Are you proposing to make any stay at West Lynn?' "'Off again to-morrow. My leave this time is to be spent at my mother's. I may bestow a week of it or so on West Lynn, but I am not sure. I must be back in Ireland in a month. Such a horrid boghole we are quartered in just now.' "'To go from one subject to another,' observed Mr. Carlyle, "'there is a question I have long thought to put to you, Thorn. Did we ever meet again? Which year was it that you were staying at Swainson?' Major Thorn mentioned it. It was the year of Hallijohn's murder. "'As I thought, in fact, no,' said Mr. Carlyle. "'Did you, while you were stopping there, ever come across a namesake of yours, one Thorn?' "'I believe I did. But I don't know the man, of my knowledge, and I saw him but once only. I don't think he was living at Swainson. I never observed him in the town.' "'Where did you meet with him?' "'At a roadside beer-shop.' about two miles from Swainson. I was riding one day, when a fearful storm came on, and I took shelter there. Scarcely had I entered, when another horseman rode up, and he likewise took shelter. A tall, dandified man, aristocratic and exclusive. When he departed, for he quitted first, the storm being over, I asked the people who he was. They said they did not know, though they had often seen him ride by. But a man who was there, drinking, said he was a Captain Thorn. The same man, by the way, volunteered the information that he came from a distance, somewhere near West Lynn. I remember that. That Captain Thorn did? No, that he, himself, did. He appeared to know nothing of Captain Thorn beyond the name. It seemed to be ever so. Scraps of information, but nothing tangible. Nothing to lay hold of or to know the man by. Would it be thus always? "'Should you recognize him again were you to see him?' resumed Mr. Carlyle, awaking from his reverie. "'I think I should. There was something peculiar in his countenance, and I remember it well yet.' "'Were you by chance to meet him and discover his real name? For I have reason to believe that Thorn, the one he went by then, was an assumed one. Will you oblige me by letting me know it?' "'With all the pleasure in life,' replied the Major. "'The chances are against it, though.' confined as I am to that confounded sister-country. Other regiments get the luck of being quartered in the metropolis, or near it. Ours doesn't. When Major Thorn departed, and Mr. Carlyle was about to return to the room where he left his sister, he was interrupted by Joyce. Sir, she began, Miss Carlyle tells me that there is going to be a change at East Lynne. The words took Mr. Carlyle by surprise. Miss Carlyle has been in a hurry to tell you, he remarked a certain haughty displeasure in his tone. "'She did not speak for the sake of telling me, sir. It is not likely. But I fancy she was thinking about her own plans. She inquired whether I would go with her when she left, 
or whether I meant to remain at East Lynn. I would not answer her, sir, until I had spoken to you. Well, said Mr. Carlyle. I gave a promise, sir, to, to, my late lady, that I would remain with her children as long as I was permitted. She asked it of me when she was ill, when she thought she was going to die. What I would inquire of you, sir, is whether the change will make any difference to my staying. No, he decisively replied. I also, Joyce, wish you to remain with the children. It is well, sir, Joyce answered, and her face looked bright as she quitted the room. End of chapter 30